Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Welcome to the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association, or JOMA, podcast. I'm your host, Elisa Minkin. I'm a general pediatrician and proud JOMA member. And today I'm really, really honored and really, really excited to be interviewing for the second time Dr. Jennifer Bain. If there are topics you want to hear, you want to be interviewed, you know someone you want to hear being interviewed, or you have comments on the podcast we've done so far, please do not hesitate to reach out to us at health, H-E-A-L-T-H, at JOMA.org. We want to hear from you. I'll also say that um, this is an autism talk, and I've done so many already. I don't even know if I can link them all, but I'm going to try to at least link um, the basic overview and a couple of other ones um, that I think were, are especially relevant. But um, don't be afraid to look back among the gazillion ones I've done already and listen to those too. Dr. Jennifer Bain, MD, PhD, is an assistant professor of neurology and pediatrics at Columbia University Medical Center. She completed both an MD and PhD as well as General Pediatrics Residency at Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School in New Jersey. She then trained in child neurology at New York Presbyterian Columbia University Medical Center in New York City and is a board certified neurologist with a special certification in child neurology and seeing both inpatient and outpatient pediatric neurology patients. Her clinic focuses on diagnosis and management of autism, cerebral palsy, and neurodevelopmental disorders in addition to genetic disorders associated with such conditions. She currently works as a physician scientist at Columbia University specializing in general pediatric neurology with expertise in development, behavioral neurology, autism, and cerebral palsy. Her clinical research is focused on studying of neurodevelopmental disorders including autism and cerebral palsy. The genes she has worked on closely include RNPH2 and related disorders, GRIN disorders, KIF1A. She's interested in understanding clinically meaningful measures in families affected by neurodevelopmental disorders and measuring longitudinal trajectories in such disorders. She has been working closely with several patient advocacy groups, researchers, and Simon Searchlight to continuously move forward in the understanding of the developing and aging brain. Welcome, Dr. Bain. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me back. Happy to share some discussion. Yes, I'm very excited. So, you know, as we were talking before, I have done so many talks related to autism and it's just, it's endless. There is so much more to talk about. And I hope we can finish this as I told you <laughs> one session, because even the stuff that I haven't talked about or haven't updated enough could fill many talks. So I want to start, I want to start with just what we know about what causes autism, because that's going to lead into everything else. What do we know? What don't we know? We know, we know less about what we don't know than what we do know. Um, we recognize that it is something we see on the outside defined by behaviors, but we don't necessarily know what causes all those behaviors. If we kind of go backwards, we see behaviors on the outside and the two groups of behaviors based on a book called the DSM-5 are um, atypical or deficits in social interaction and social communication, plus restricted, repetitive, and rigid behaviors in addition to sensory issues. And so the combination of those two from a young age as behaviors is the diagnosis of autism. If we step back, we know that there's some brain circuitry that leads to these behaviors. 
And then if we go way back, we can find some genetic causes and how they contribute to those networks for forming. But then there's a huge black box in between that whole connection of, well, how do we get from basic genetic changes to networks and behaviors? Right, especially because there are so many genetic connections. How much do we know about already? So we knew early, so decades ago, we realized and recognized that um, from, from family histories, we knew that families who are affected by one individual with autism were more likely to have another individual with autism. And when we looked at siblings, that was even higher. And so because of that, we uh, proposed and hypothesized that there was a genetic component. And we did find that, that if you have one sibling with autism, you're at an increase as for having another another child with autism. And then when you have twins, it's higher, um, identical, identical twins, even higher. Um, and then we tried to learn about whether there was one specific gene that maybe put people at risk for having autism. And what we realized was that was not true at all. Um, and so we now have hundreds of single genes that seem to increase the risk for development of autism. But we also know that there's certain parts of the genome. So certain parts that could be either doubled or missing or, or um, just abnormally kind of copied. We call them copy number variants in our genome that also seem to be uh, a risk factor for developing um, this type of clinical picture. Most of these genes that we look back at, if we look at them individually, have something to do with brain development. Um, typically, they are genes that are important for making those uh, neurons or nerve cells, and then the connections between the nerve cells. So we're trying to better understand, we, we recognize that it's not just one single genetic problem or one single gene, but maybe it's the process of the brain developing, uh, more of a network issue. And we're still trying to better understand how can we group together perhaps those genetic changes um, into specific areas. For example, is it just, um, you know, how many dendrites or little outpotions come out on a mm -hmm. nerve cell, or is it the actual communication and connection of those two nerve cells? Is it the um, neurotransmitters that are being released? So I think there's different areas and we're trying to better understand what exactly about early brain development seems to be changed so that it later leads to network problems and then eventually leads to those behavioral differences that you see. Right. What's the current rate of autism? How common is it? So it, it depends on what study you look at and what how that mm -hmm. study is done. So in the United States, the Center for Disease Control or the CDC uses a program um, that specifically is looking at prevalence of autism and developmental dif dif difficulties um, in the United States. And we originally were doing eight-year-olds um, and now we're doing four and eight-year-olds. It's called the ADDM or the Autism and Developmental Disabilities Monitoring Network. And so they collect information and then there's researchers at different states that will look at information, medical information, educational information. Originally, they were only looking at the eight-year-olds because they figured most everybody's in school by then, we can capture everybody. Um, and that's when, what started back in the 2000s. Now we're looking at the four-year-olds and the eight-year-olds. So we can really start 
to see kind of the younger kids and the older kids. Um, and and what they do is every few years they'll they'll look at at the data and the statistics to kind of see what what the numbers are. So when they first looked at it in 2000, that was on the little kids that were born in 1992, and it was one in 150. And those are those charts that you see that keep increasing. The most right. recent surveillance year was in 2020. So these would be children born in 2012. And the rate at the, in, in this group was one in 36. Now recognize that that's based on 11 different states or different sites that are reporting this data. And so importantly, New York is not one of those states. Um, mm. So every state is a little bit different. If you look at New Jersey, for example, it's usually very high rates. And if you look at other states such as Alabama, they're much lower rates. And so there's different, obviously, reasons why that might be. Um, but in general- may, it, I'm sorry, it may not be so obvious. And I really want you to go into that because it's important. Because right. my next well, question, of course, is why is there this rise? Everyone's talking about this rise. Yeah. Well, I think we, we agree that it's multifactorial. We certainly are more aware of autism. We are mm -hmm. certainly, parents are more eager to understand their children's and the challenges they might have. And so they might seek out um, this evaluation more than they would have before. Clinical providers are more aware of the diagnosis, are more um, understanding of what the diagnostic um, uncertainties are, uncertainties are for the diagnosis. We are recognizing um, that we need more resources to make the diagnosis. So locations such as New Jersey have much more resources than a location such as Alabama. So that diagnosis might be much more easily done in a state that has more resources than not. Um, Similarly, not only diagnosis resources, but also, you know, educational and behavioral resources. Right. So New Jersey has a lot of resources for individuals and families affected by autism, not necessarily in Alabama or some of these other states. So that very likely is affecting that prevalence rate. We definitely have less of a social stigma. And then importantly, we recognize that in 2013, that that DSM, um, which is the textbook, switched from the fourth version to the fifth version. And when we did that switch, we actually kind of broadened out the definition um, and allowed for, we call it the spectrum now, um, but really allowed for a larger understanding of what this could be um, and understanding the diagnosis. So our, our diagnosis is broader, our diagnosis is better. Um, we recognize that you need the diagnosis to get a lot of the services. Um, and then I think there is a fair bit of data out there to suggest that, yes, they really are on the rise, just like other neurodevelopmental disorders, such as ADHD and learning disorders. And why would that be? We don't know. There's lots of research <laughs> out there about whether that's something right. environmental, um, something genetic overall is going on. Um, one other thing that I forgot to mention was in that DSM-4, individuals um, had could only be given a diagnosis of either autism or intellectual disability. And so now mm. in the DSM-5, you can be given both. Half of people with autism have an intellectual disability. So half of those people just had to, they had to choose, some oversimplifying it here, but clinicians had to choose which was the more appropriate diagnosis. So I think even that diagnostic substitution has likely kind of increased our numbers uh, because now we're recognizing that, yes, we can use both diagnosis to describe an individual's cognitive profile. Right. And I mean, again, I don't want to say more than we know, but obviously there's a stigma to a diagnosis that'd be offset by what you can do about it. So if there's not services available, why get a label? But if there is and the entry ticket is the label, then you're going to get the label. Right. And so I think that New York and New Jersey are two states that are have much more resources 
for autism specific services. Right. Right. And, and a lot of that comes down to obviously multifactorial. What, what are the, what's the lobbying? What are the resources? What are the taxes? What is the socioeconomic status of that state as a whole? There's a lot of other um, layers of complexity to that. Right. I want to divert a little bit to diagnosis because, you know, you mentioned the DSM and it's a qualitative, right? It's kind of an observation thing. You know, how do we make the diagnosis? Has that changed over time? Do we have any newer methods? You know, how do we get equal access for this? I have so many questions. <laughs> so it is still a behaviorally defined diagnosis. So, and, and in that DSM, you can, anybody can look it up. And so it's all over the internet too. Um, and it's an individual from a early age who presents with these two groups of behaviors and you have to have three in this box and two of the four in this box. Um, and they are clinical behaviors based on a clinical diagnosis. That being said, recognizing that clinician to clinician, their experience and their exposure may be different and the examination or evaluation might be done in different locations, such as telehealth versus home versus um, at the office versus in a, you know, uh, examination room. We recognize that there are many variables in order to try to justify that or to try to kind of validate it. There are specific tools that could be used to um, support the diagnosis. So for example, the, the gold standard in most practices is something called ADOS, the um, Autism Diagnostic Observations Schedule. Um, and that is, that is one of the typical, um, it's a play-based evaluation with specific quantity, quantitation of these behaviors um, being observed by a qualified individual. However, there are other scales and observation tools out there that could be used to justify that diagnosis. Um, and depending on where you go, you will have a different tool being utilized to support that diagnosis. Um, typically, psychologists such as at our autism center will use the ADOS in addition to cognitive testing and adaptive skill testing. Whereas I'm a neurologist in my office, I don't necessarily have that long of a visit. Um, and right. I typically use a different evaluation scale or tool called the CARS or the Childhood Autism Rating Scale. And so different scales can be used. Um, when it goes back to it, you know, it is a clinical diagnosis, but these tools are there to kind of um, prove or disprove or support or not support the diagnosis. Um, importantly, it's to recognize, logistically speaking, often in order to get therapies, you need a tool right. <laughs> to prove that this is the diagnosis. And so it's not uncommon for insurance companies or schools to say, well, what's the score? Give me the score. And they require that ADOS or the CARS or something akin to that. Um, does everybody need an ADOS? Unlikely no. Um, however, can you use tools like that to better understand a profile? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting because I learned that in many New York areas, early intervention will provide a psychologist to do the ADOS and make what I call an ironclad diagnosis. I mean, whether it is or not, it, it's respected for a lot of services. There's a lot of services that can follow once you get that official diagnosis. And I've heard pediatricians say, well, I went to medical school. I learned about autism. I can, and often, you know, we can see it. We can see it and we can, you know, say it meets all the criteria according to the DSM-5. The problem will be, will that be that ticket, that entryway ticket, especially when you think about the rising demand yeah. and services that goes along with the rising diagnosis. So it's, it's, it's also interesting. And people often come up to me and say, well, a 
you know, I, my child can get diagnosed with autism when they're two, but they can't when they're seven. Um, and that's because early intervention is a service that's provided by the health department, right? Um, mm. Whereas when you're seven, you're in the department of education, not the department right. of health. And so the goals of each of those systems, so department of of health early intervention, zero to three, um, which is every state versus department of education, which is really looking for the educational aspect. Uh, not to say that autism is not a incredibly important um, piece to education. Um, that diagnosis is very important, um, but there, what you can get out of a diagnosis from department of health is different than a classification that you'll get in the education system. Um, but you're absolutely right. A lot of pediatricians are very keen and, and very absolutely could provide that diagnosis. So pediatricians can certainly say, this is this is my concern. I feel very strongly about this. That being said, logistically, that patient probably will benefit from um, you know, a more specialized evaluation. We use tools in the primary care um, locations, such as the MCHAT and other questionnaires that are really screeners to support you in your concerns and then kind of push them more towards a, a longer evaluation session. Um, and then, you know, we were talking about other newer quantitative things out there. There are there are interests in the world to saying, could we use other skills such as AI or artificial intelligence to make the diagnosis? And you had asked me earlier about mm -hmm. some eye techniques. So um, we recognize that in autism, very often individuals have um, poor eye contact and, and we do see abnormalities in gaze as gaze is... Um, related to, correlated to our social interaction. Um, and so there are programs out there and research studies that are being validated and even considered in, in, in practice um, to red be being big red flags for concern for autism. Um, and the goal of that, I think, still is at the point where that wouldn't be used for diagnosis, but it it surely could be used for screening um, and for kind of helping push individuals towards that um, evaluation more closely in, in areas that maybe don't have that um, as easily available. So I just want to understand, it's not ready for prime time then, because I, you know, I was told that there was a commercially available and I couldn't find it online and that it was supposed to be as good or better than the ADOS and that didn't really make sense to me. You're laughing, so it must not be true, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, so um, it might be on the cusp of, of being evaluated, be, being offered. I know that it was, it's around that time. So here's the thing though. How do they confirm the diagnosis when they get ASD? They use the ADOS. So it's not as good or better because how do you confirm autism in the first place? I, it, I think it's a matter of, yes, it is very good at, at, at recognizing individuals who might be at risk for that autism diagnosis or might end up having that autism diagnosis as confirmed by an ADOS and clinical evaluation. I think, you know, again, the ADOS is the gold standard, but does it diagnose everybody all the time, hundred percent quantitatively? No, absolutely not. No, but the question is, would that eye test be more than a screen or would it be a diagnostic tool? Or would it be sensitive and specific? And the reason this is so important is because, yes, in some areas, you can get an ADOS without having to pay any money through early intervention, which is funded by the Department of Health, which stops promptly at three, by the way, right? Once you're three, it's school already. It's the school board that is for funding the services and you, you do not get that. So we're missing a lot of kids who are not ready to go through that. The parents have to be ready. The doctor has to be ready to pick it up, et cetera, et cetera, right? And other areas don't do this. So what about all of those kids? The developmental Great. pediatricians often don't take insurance, have a long wait list when they do, over a year. And a year is a lifetime for a child of this age. And then yeah. what? So there's a tremendous <laughs> interest in something that would be more affordable, available, et cetera. And there's also, by the way, video 
um, evaluations on telehealth. I've heard of services that do that. I don't know how specific and sensitive yeah. they are, but it does make more sense, sense to me that that could be if you're really actually looking at more than just eye movement. A hundred percent. So I think, yeah, it's body language, it's eye contact. And, and after doing three years of telehealth, I, I feel pretty confident. I'd say 98% of the patients that I've evaluated and I had an autism concern with telehealth did end up having it when I saw them in person. Um, so I think we've gotten very keen and very good at our, our video and tele-evaluation services. You know, I think as a clinician, we always wonder at what point is it the clinical impression versus a computer program or a computer algorithm, right? So there's a lot of questions in the field of medicine now. Can chat GPT right. give you the appropriate diagnosis? I saw somebody the other day where they said, if you come into the emergency room, the computer can predict whether or not you, you have Kawasaki based on all the lab values. And I said, wow, that's a really, my child had Kawasaki. So oh, wow. like, oh, that's really interesting. And that could be a really smart tool. Am I at the point or are we in a medicine at a societal level ready to say, yes, the computer or can say it or not. I don't think we're there yet. Um, but would this allow access and more streamlined evaluation and providing access to resources? Yes, absolutely. I think we just have to be mindful that it, it's not necessarily replacement, um, but could it expedite in locations where they don't have access to neurologists and psychiatrists and psychologists and developmental pediatricians where they might be able to get that, um, that test that, that, is really holding them back from getting services. Absolutely. Right. And one of the problems, by the way, for a pediatrician to make a diagnosis is we don't have access to even the cars. We just don't. It's, these are programs that you have to be certified in. You have to pay a fee to, et cetera. It's not a screen like the MCHAT, which by the way, pediatricians do, should be doing and we do. Yeah. Well, and the interesting thing is, you know, um, the, uh, the, well, the important thing to recognize though, is that pediatricians absolutely can, can start that process, um, and say, you know, I have significant concerns. I know my pediatrician is amazing. Um, uh, but I know that he also, you know, he actually does spend quite a bit of time with us on our, on our routine visits. Um, but it's not necessarily, you know, once a year for 15 minutes, I think it's a lot about history. It's a lot about mm -hmm. development and those longer discussions really, um, should continue beyond, you know, the, the well check. Um, I think pediatricians, know they they absolutely know their children um and and where their concerns are and so if they have those concerns i personally i think if they are well trained and they feel that very confident in that decision making having those discussions with patients shouldn't be an issue they should be able to say I, i'm very concerned that autism these are appropriate diagnosis here um, right but but they haven't made the diagnosis <laughs> for know. entry I, my point is how do we get them in that door how do we do that? I mean, it's frustrating to be a pediatrician. It's just one more thing we're frustrated about that we know more than we can actualize in the well, time I, that we have. Yeah, I think it's a it's a matter of yeah empowering the, the medical societal view of who can make the diagnosis. If you ask a lot of people, they say neurologists can or psychiatrists can or and then other people say, well, no, a medical provider has to say it, not a not a psychologist. So um, it's kind of a, a made up quandrum that we we have put ourselves in at this point. It's a turf war. In a way, in a way. And, and I think may, maybe it's because we don't know what it is in the first place. <laughs> so I think, you know, having places like we have an autism center that's multidisciplinary where, you know, I, the neurologist goes there, psychiatrist goes there, psychologist goes there, developmental pediatrician goes there. And, and, but I think the reality is that we have to humble ourselves so we don't really understand what we're doing. Doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything about it. Um, it just means that we have to be mindful of other viewpoints of the elephant in the room. Absolutely. It's hard, though, because as a parent, you don't want to feel that your child has been given a label 
from an eye movement test or from a 15 minute visit. Yeah, absolutely. As, as, as I would feel as well as a parent. Right. So, so I think that's one of the limitations, right? Most of my visits, I want to make sure that, that what I saw in my office for that hour was an appropriate representation of that child. Right. Do you have any advice to pediatricians while they're waiting for that kid on the wait list for the neurologist or developmental pediatrician? And we're talking about the kids who you didn't get into your early intervention ADOS setup, because if you can do that, you can always refer them for other reasons. And we can talk about that. It's the kids that are either older or your, your area doesn't have that. What can we do? That's a great point. I, I mean, I think it's a matter of getting their IEP and seeing how it's written to say, well, what are the other services that might be helpful? Could we push them into a social group once or twice a week? Can we switch that speech therapy to group therapy, right? Can you write a letter and have them put at the beginning of that IEP, um, pediatrician has concerns for autism undergoing an evaluation now? I don't, I don't see why not. Right. And I, I think we have to talk about ABA, all right, with the caveat that I've done a whole talk on it and I gave a trigger warning because it has become in some circles so controversial. I don't know if you want to go into that a little bit, not too much. <laughs> So I think, you know, back to what is autism, we don't know, but we define it based on behaviors. Those behaviors we consider typical, though not necessarily a challenge. In my mind, in my understanding and, and thought about what autism is, recognizing that number one, I don't know what it is scientifically, and, and number two, I don't have autism. Um, what I view as our behaviors, and some behaviors, not all necessarily, could be challenging. And when I say a problem, I, I, I don't say everything's a problem, I, and not everything is a disorder here. We think about challenges that are dangerous, physically or emotionally. I consider a challenge something that is intrusive or limiting that individual, maybe um, provide self-consciousness to that individual with maybe undue anxiety, maybe it, you know if somebody is so hyperactive and impulsive, they run away. So those, those to me are challenges that could be treated and could be supported, okay? Um, and so to me, part of understanding autism is understanding what are the behaviors that are challenges or what are the behaviors that could lead to difficulties either now or later. And so- in that respect, these are behaviors. So therefore, there's not a medicine. It's behavioral therapy, understanding, let's identify the behavior that we're concerned about that we think is a challenge, we think is a challenge. Let's maybe identify with that person what behaviors are a challenge if you're able to, because that really is ideal. Um, and then how do we treat it with a therapy to address that behavior? So to me, if somebody comes up to me and the behavior of... Um, for example, the behavior of having difficulty with eye contact and social communication is leading to difficulties with attaining friendships and relationships when a person wants to because of autism. Then we provide a behavioral support to say, how can we improve the body language and the eye contact and those social relationships? So you say, yes, we think, okay, behavioral therapy. Then you have to say, well, what kind of behavioral therapy? And then that's where the whole discussion of ABA comes in because it is a type of behavioral therapy. It just so happens that it was one that was done with clinical trials and some attempt at a scientific rigor. Um, and therefore there were some kind of studies to say, we give a, this type of therapy versus no therapy to a group of individuals. And this is the one that actually showed that, yes, we saw improvements in certain areas of living, communication, social interaction, maladaptive behaviors. And so ABA got a good name very quickly because it actually showed improvements in some of those less desirable behaviors. 
That being said, the field of ABA is very wide. And so some of the past, not theories, but actually implementation of the ABA was very negative and is very negatively done and should not, does not actually happen nowadays or shouldn't happen nowadays with more negative reinforcement as opposed to positive reinforcement for the more desirable behaviors. And so ABA people can get very quick to judge yes or no. Um, ABA does not fit all individuals. It works for some individuals. It doesn't work for other individuals. It works for based on who your ABA provider is because mm -hmm. you have a good therapist. You don't have a good therapist. So there's many different variables. I just encourage parents to be mindful that you need to look at it to see what it is. Um, to actually see who are the providers, what is the type of therapy. And importantly, regardless of what behavioral therapy you do, whether that's ABA, Floor Time, Early Start Denver Model, Jasper, please do learn about the different types of behavioral therapies out there, what's available in your, in your location. And then think about whether or not, honestly, that's something that would work for your child. Um, and then importantly, when you are coming up with whatever behavioral intervention you're going to do, identify the goals that are meaningful to that child, to your child and you. What are the, behavior, what, what are the things that you want to get out of this? And that's going to be personalized. And so regardless of whether you're doing ABA or something else, you have to help identify the goals that you think would be helpful for that individual. Now back to, who, well, why does everyone always talk about ABA and nothing else? Well, because they did those studies back in the day, that's what insurance, who is a business, said, okay, this is the only one we're going to approve because there's some science behind it. Doesn't mean the other ones don't work, just means that the, the trials, the clinical trials weren't done. And so therefore, insurance companies think this might be the only way to do it. Um, does it fit everybody? No, absolutely not. Are there many other therapies out there? Yes. Yes, there is. Right. But are they equally accessible? You just told me why not. Yeah. One of the biggest, limitations, mm -hmm. one of the biggest limitations is that eight, that only in the last five to 10 years is ABA being required to be accepted by insurance companies. So we haven't even gotten every insurance company, for example, Medicaid's to Medicaid, yes. To pay, for, for, to pay for ABA. And right. even if they say, we'll pay for it, that doesn't mean you can actually find a, a company that says, yeah, right. we accept your insurance. Yeah. So because they're not paying as much. Ways, we got a ways to go. We have a way. Right, right, right. That's, that's so when you say ABA is one behavior therapy, what do you mean by that? Can you just give a little bit just in case people haven't had time to listen to my entire ABA talk? Behavioral therapy podcast. implies that you're trying to change behaviors, address mm -hmm. behaviors, improve or increase the desirable ones and, um, you know, ignore or get rid of the bad ones. So there's different types of ABA. There's different types of therapeutic intervention theories out there in terms of what is the best way to do it. Um, I can give you some, you know, for example, on Autism Speaks has something called a 100-day toolkit, and they list out each one of those different types of therapies, and it, it kind of tells you. Absolutely, one of the limitations is that insurance doesn't pay for necessarily all those other types, but it's important to recognize if you're looking at local preschools or early educate, different early education centers, they might use different types of models, different types of learning models. And so it's important to recognize that there are different types of models, but most of them are under that umbrella of behavioral therapy. 
Right, under the umbrella of behavior therapy, but not strict ABA. And I think there's also a spectrum where you talk about strict discrete trial ABA, where you're sitting them at a table and you're yeah. doing flashcards or whatever, as opposed to, I think that it's becoming more evolved and yeah, more naturalistic, naturalistic and, and more of an approach as opposed to rigid, discrete, super old-fashioned ABA. That's one thing I want to say. The other yeah. thing I want to say is that we didn't really talk about how it was started. And the, the original intention was to cure or make people look not autistic. And that is a big issue with people who are autistic advocates, who are neurodivergent advocates, which again, I have other podcasts on this. I don't want to go down that road too much other than we're trying to use the term autism and not ASD or autism spectrum disorder because the neurodivergent advocates are like, we're not broken. We have different brains. And that's where I think the the neurodiversity, neuroaffirming aspect of this is so important. I was on mm-hmm. with a patient earlier today. Um, I hadn't seen the person in about two years um, due to COVID, COVID telehealth. And that young um, female is now a teenager. And the last time I saw that person, the, the, the conversation was actually mostly driven by the parents and the parents' concerns. This conversation started off with that individual telling me how well they were doing, what they thought, uh-huh. working, what they thought. I was, oh, I was almost in tears the father was in tears and I said I am amazed by this and then they said can can they step out so we can have their conversation I said well not really I said can we please have them come in like I'm her doctor right and so like this should be a discussion as a family and so to me ABA doesn't fix anything we need to go back and say well what are the things that are challenges right is it social interaction is it, is it arm flapping? I don't know. Most of the time I could care less about arm flapping, right? Is it toe walking? Again, same thing. Is that harming anybody? Is it causing you to be self-conscious? Is it causing you to be anxious? No, then who cares? Let it be, right? Identify the things that really matter to that individual, not you. I don't care about you. I do, but I don't. I care about the child and the individual. So identify right. what are the behaviors that really we need to support. And I think right. I love framing the way you think about- yeah. Right. Like you mentioned flapping and a lot of people on the spectrum will say that helps me regulate. Why are you taking it away from me? And if you're looking at ABA as a way to make the person look normal, to cure them, so to speak, right? That was originally Ivar Lovis's goal to say that after a certain amount of ABA therapy, they, they looked indistinguishable from their neurotypical peers, right? And I think that's one of the ways we've changed, not every individual, but we've changed in how we look at autism. I'm wondering what you hear from parents, because I used to hear all the time about the magic cures, right? The gluten-free, casein-free diet and hyperbaric oxygen and secretin and all of those things. And I haven't heard about it for a long time, that magic cure. I don't know about you. I don't, I think at least in the, so number one, physicians and clinicians are not all trained in what autism is. Cause again, we don't know what it is. Right. And so it's important to recognize that the information that that providers are giving to parents may not necessarily be based on on updated information. And so if you read in a textbook, the gold standard is an ADOS that everybody gets ABA, both of those statements are not necessarily true. And that doesn't mean you have a bad doctor. It's just that this is a fast moving world in terms of our understanding of what this is and what we're trying to support slash treat. There is no, I think- most providers understand that we're not curing. There's no treatment. There's nothing wrong here, but there's areas that are challenges and we need to support those challenges. And I, and I think that's a shift. And so 
the cure, I don't think I've ever said that. Um, and, I, and I will say that I think most patients and parents understand that there is no curing because most of them do say, I don't want to change my child. Oh. I want to support them, which right. I 100% agree with. My job is not to change who you are, whether that's with a medicine or a diet. I don't want to change your, who you are. I want to help support you. All right. And so we have absolutely recognized that treatment, well, testing and treatment. So testing with hair, with poop, with pee, with blood, none of that can give us a diagnosis based on behaviors. Are we moving into AI and other areas of, of diagnosis supports? Yeah, maybe. Um, but in terms of treatments, what are they trying to treat? So um, antibiotics, probiotics, certain therapies, certain um diets, certain TMS, a lot of these things have not been shown to be helpful in what they're looking for. Nothing has been shown helpful for those core domains of, of the autism diagnosis, except for behavioral intervention. All right. Um, and so, you know, I think most people feel pretty comfortable saying, yeah, I'm not, number one, I'm not going to cure my child. Number two, a lot of those things don't work. If there was something out there that could be helpful to people. Absolutely. A lot of children suffer from um, constipation. Well, that's really uncomfortable to be walking around constipated every day. So if I gave you probiotics and that helped your constipation, you think you're going to be feeling better because you're, because you're not constipated and then you're behaving pair. Absolutely. If you're gluten-free and casein-free because you actually have a gluten sensitivity and a casein sensitivity, that's like me walking around eating McDonald's for every meal every right. day. Because my body is not going to be happy. Same thing. So if you have sensitivities, then I'll, absolutely you should be on those diets. Does it work for everybody? No. But right. How do you work with families who come in and say, you know, I really think that this is caused by X, like something dietary. How do you work with them? Well, I think that's when, you know, my job is not to be paternalistic and say like, this is right. You're wrong. You're mm -hmm. right. You're wrong. I'm right. Cause the reality is we don't know what we're doing here. You know, I think we, we try to make say my job is to say what is safe what do we know in the world? What do we not know about in the world? And what would be my recommendation? So, you know, if it comes down to a diet, I would say, okay, well, you know, how are you, if you want to continue that diet, do, do I think as a doctor, as a physician, is that diet safe? Right. And if it's safe, then I say, well, I, I, I do not think that there's enough evidence to say it's been helpful. It's not harmful. Please make sure you take your multivitamin or something along those lines. Okay. I can provide the evidence that I know about. Um, but I recognize there's a lot we don't know about. Um, I also really try things people often ask about CBD and this and that. And I say, well, let's use it as an intervention. If it's safe, we will try it as an intervention. Try the gluten-free celiac, gluten-free, casein-free for one month. And then what are we going to measure? Are we going to measure self-injurious behaviors, communication, whatever? Let's just identify what we're going to look at. And then we're going to measure that in a month and say, did you see improvement in those areas? And if you did, and there were no side effects, go for it. If you feel like you're, if, if you feel like your child did better and I feel like that's safe, then I have no problem with you continuing that. If however you get through a month and you're like, I don't really think I saw a difference. I would tell you, well, I, I agree. I don't think there is much evidence. And now we haven't really seen much evidence here. I don't think it's worth your time or your money. I'd rather you spend your money on um, horseback riding therapy or a social right. skills. I'd rather you spend your money on something that I think is more likely to be beneficial. Right. You know, there was a famous, not famous, but there was a story of a dad who was also a doctor and he had his autistic kids on a gluten-free, casein-free diet. And then they went to Disney 
and they ate at some restaurant there and it was not gluten-free, casein-free. He's like, oh my God, they're exactly the same. It wasn't doing anything all this time. So, you know, not doing something forever that has its downside too, because there are downsides to limiting your diet, especially if you want a very limited diet. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's all about, you know, our job, what is our job as a physician to do no harm, right. <laughs> do no harm and try to help. Um, but first do no harm. So, you know, my job really is to say like, do I feel like you're getting everything you need? I can't tell you how many patients I've had over the years that have scurvy because they're not having any fruits. So, you know, if anything, I can say, just make sure you get a little bit of fruits every day. Um, if you, you know, and, and so to me, like, that's my job first and foremost. And then if I can help, that would be even better. All right, that's a really good point. I've also had patients with scurvy and, you know, making sure that the diet is not so limited that they have deficiencies, right? I mean, you're not going to feel good if you're not on a healthy diet and that can really be a challenge. And so I feel like getting all the resources you need to, to try to help your child is, is really important. But I do see, I don't know if you're seeing it, but I do see it. I don't see so much the magic cures, but I do see people seeking diagnoses like PANDAs. Yeah. or a chronic Lyme as, you know, your child doesn't really have autism. They have one of those things. And well, I want to you know, know your thoughts on that. They're, they're not mutually exclusive. So, you know, in terms of pans and pandas, this is also a field that we don't know a lot about. Mm -hmm. um, these are basically our, our premise is that we, we think that the brain is responding to an infection that happened in the past. This happens with a lot of other things. Um, we know it, we know it happens with strep infections for sure. There's something called Sydenham's chorea, where the right. body, um, you know, is actually being attacked by mimics in the brain and it, it causes a movement disorder. And, and we know that happens. Um, so I don't think anybody disagrees that you can have brain-based issues after or during an infection. The question is, that is, what is it doing and then how do we treat it? And that's where we're not really at yet. There's a, a huge growing community of, of immunology experts, um, scientists, clinicians, physician scientists that are really trying to understand what exactly is going on that might cause an infection and then after the infection behavioral worsening pans and pandas is actually based on behaviors, a certain set of behaviors after right. an infection. The reality is that you can absolutely have autism and pans pandas, um, but they are technically separate things, but they're also based on behaviors. And a lot of times those behaviors overlap. So it just gets really tricky to try to tease it apart. The bigger problem with pans and pandas right now is diagnostically is one thing, but treatment is a different. We don't right. really have a lot of, again, scientific premise to say this is an inflammatory condition and we should be giving anti-inflammatories. And so I think that's where we don't really know. Um, Chronic Lyme, similarly, I don't, I think we understand what active Lyme is right now, but what's going on long-term, we don't necessarily know what that's doing. And again, I think the goal is to say, do no harm. So is there harm in giving a child long-term antibiotics if we think there was an infection in the past? Probably antibiotic resistance for that individual and then, uh, you know, our, our microbiome as a whole. So I think, again, the goal is to say, and IVIG, intravenous immunoglobulin, there's lots of different treatments that potentially could be helpful but could it be harmful? Yeah, it can be. And so we just have to be very mindful of those risks when you're thinking about diagnosis and then a future treatment. Um, do we do we want a, a treatment? Yeah, yes, of course we want a treatment as a physician. If I had something that I could make available, why would I be sitting here seeing patients with a one-year wait list when right. like I could give it out? Um, so I just, you know, I, I ache for families, people want to help their children. Doctors want to help their children, help their right. patients. Like that's what we want. Um, I just don't think we know 
what that means, number one, and then how to do it. So we have uncertainty piled on uncertainty, right? We have uncertainty what autism is. We have uncertainty with, you know, maybe not how to diagnose pans, pandas, but what to do about it. And at the end of the day, well, how does it help you to have a diagnosis and not know what to do about it? And I think that's, you know, that might be where the ABA thing comes up with. It's like, okay, well, you make the diagnosis, you can give them the therapy, but the reality is that therapy is not going to be one for all. Okay. Um, there's also something called the placebo effect. And this is not only in autism, but in, in, in all studies. So if you're in a clinical trial and you give somebody a, a treatment, we always have to ask ourselves, what's the likelihood of just being in that trial um, mentally makes you think that you're going to do better. And uh, mo in most autism studies, the numbers are up to 30 to 50% placebo. So half the time people just think they're getting better and they might not necessarily be getting anything. And, and that's just, I think us being human and hoping, I think that's called hope, um, but I'm, I'm not sure. And, and I think people want to help their families. Right, but it's also a behavior disorder and you have good days and bad days. And that's why it's so hard. I see parents who want to do many things at once and you have no idea what's flying. Yeah. Well, and I think that's where when you go to providers, um, you know, for example, my, my area of interest is in autism and developmental disorder. So I feel very comfortable saying this is what we're going to do. We're going to wait a month. You're going to do your intervention. Right. And we're going to check in. Um, whereas somebody who may not, maybe doesn't, doesn't necessarily have that, that expertise or that training or that, that comfort there may not know that and switch from one med to another med to another med to another med. And then maybe I say, well, why, what are we trying to do? Like, what is the goal of the medicine in the first place? Um, and so that really comes down to the, to the provider and the patient's relationship um, and what the goals are and making sure that they're on the same page. Right. But I do still want to go back a little bit to the pans, pandas, Lyme thing where people are told by, say, maybe alternative providers that your child does not have autism. They have Lyme, they have pandas. And, and, I personally see as the downside all the time loss and the loss of trust in the mainstream professionals, even um, if they do have it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's hard. I mean, you obviously don't want to go to another professional. It's, it's, it's unprofessional to say something negative about another professional, regardless of where their training is. Um, us as humans shouldn't be negating other people um, and their impressions. I think, you know, my job is to say, well, this is my list of reasons why. Um, right. I disagree with that because of this and that because of that. Um, and, you know, the reality is if you, you could find a test that can come up with a red flag anywhere, there's plenty of tests out there that can, people can do. Does that test matter? Maybe not. Just because I can do an MRI on everybody's body. Does that mean I'm going to do it? Not necessarily. And same thing here. You go to people who, you know, can say I can run a whole gauntlet of tests what am I using that information for um, is really what it comes down to. And I understand parents, again, parents want to find something that they can help and they want something that they can treat or fix, et cetera. And it's hard. I think if you can um, find a provider that's, that's along with you to understand that journey um, and that there's not necessarily an on off here. Um, you know, this isn't like when I tore my ACL three months ago and I see my orthopedic surgeon until I'm done and I'll see my physical therapist till I'm done and then I'm done with that and I move yeah. on. Uh, and I think that's part of the, um, something that I, I think I could empathize could be a difficult thing to swallow. Right. I love that idea of being with them on the journey. You know, you're, I'm on your team. I'm going to help in that way. Sometimes you just want to fix it or you want to do something right away. And there may not be that thing, but being there is a huge thing. And I think pediatricians go through that, right? Pediatricians yeah. are there for the journey. I love that part about my job, seeing someone from their born until they're 18. Right. And 
seeing them grow. I was in tears this morning, seeing this young woman grow up and really mature. And then it was so interesting because we made a decision with the parents and then the girl came in and I said, well, what do you think? She came up with the same plan. And I said, see, if we had asked her in the first place, we're all on the same page. So if we all just together, then, then we should be doing, this is person centric, right? Like that's looking at that person and saying, what can we do to help you? And I think that's like, that's the clinical meaningfulness in medicine that we can't forget about. It's not about just correcting the diabetes number. It's about identifying what is the clinically meaningful thing that we're, that we need to, to agree upon trying to help. Absolutely. I don't know how we didn't talk about genetics. Can we do a little bit about that? I don't know how that we happens. Did. We started with genetics about how it starts. No, not so much. Not so much because like, who should be tested? Should it be yeah. everybody? What yeah. kind of test do you do? So the, recommend- primer. the recommendations from about 10, 20 years ago were um, you do not, and this is by pediatricians, neurologists and child neurologists. Each one of those group of doctors has their clinical organization. All three of them agreed together on clinical guidelines for an autism diagnosis. Um, It is well outdated. However, um, they actually do mention things like pediatricians should be helping with the first line screening and referring to the appropriate providers, getting the appropriate supports. Um, they do they recommend against evidence for hair analysis, urine analysis, et cetera. Um, they recommend for um, these these full behavior multidisciplinary evaluations. They recommend against brain imaging. So just because you have autism doesn't need you need a brain MRI. If there's um, what we call focality, meaning weakness in one side of the body or a big head or a small head, there might be specific reasons why. But just because you have autism doesn't mean you get an MRI. Um, parents will say, well, I just want to look at the brain and make sure it's, it's all there. It's all there. It's more of a network issue, which is what we right. talked about. Um, it's a network problem. It's not that a piece is missing. Okay. Um, so in general, not everybody gets an MRI unless there's a reason. We don't recommend brainwave testing. We call that an electroencephalogram or an EEG. Unless there's a clinical concern, staring, shaking, stiffening. Now that's hard because in autism, you very often might not necessarily be as engaged. So you might be staring off. And so we, we very often will get an EEG at one point or another, if there's ever a concern, right. um, it's non-invasive, um, but you don't just do it just because. Right. Um, but all three of those groups did even realize 20 years ago that we do recommend some form of genetic testing because there's anywhere the studies show from five to 15 or even 20%. There's some kind of genetic change or genetic risk factor. Again, remember back to the cells and the nerve cells that could have contributed to those network issues later on. So the question really is, uh, so everybody should be offered, they don't have to do it, but offered and discuss genetic testing. You don't have to do it because that's a personal preference, um, but everybody should be offered that discussion point. Um, who can do it? Well, depend. you can go to genetic doctors. Some pediatricians can do it. Some neurologists can do it. Um, de- that depends. Um, and then the question really is, what is the type of testing? And that's changing. So that changes year to year in terms of the recommendations. It used to be these you know, lower lines, and now we're kind of changing what we're recommending to like broader testing. So that one, we don't have an exact answer for, but everybody should be thinking or talking to their doctor about, should I do genetic testing? Is and the answer would be yes across the board? You're supposed to talk about it. Yes. Wow. Every single one. Every single one. Not kids who have like dysmorphic features or familial, you know, wow. The likelihood of everybody's supposed to talk about it. Um, The level of testing changes are, are you increase the risk of a genetic cause depending on how many 
things are going on. So autism plus intellectual disability plus seizures plus heart problems. Well, now right. you're you're For going sure. high, right? Um, but even autism alone is 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 enough to get a clinical indication for genetic testing. Yes. Wow. Now my next question is from the parents' perspective: Why yeah. do it? What's the benefit? Yeah. So and and I will say that these these are long conversations. If you have genetic testing or if you have questions, there's a person called a genetic counselor. They're specifically trained to have these full conversations with you. Um, and so in clinical genetics, they have lots of genetic counselors embedded in our program. We do have a genetic counselor, um, but these are this is literally what they do. They talk about what are the risks and what are the potential benefits as well. Um, I think every family has a different reason. Some families say, well, I, you know, I have one child with autism. I want to know if, you know, what's the likelihood of having another child with autism. Some parents say, well, if there's a genetic cause, will this uh, cause be in my other children or their children? What I find for that individual person is some genetic etiologies do have other systems involved. So if you came to me and I said, oh, actually you do have genetic disorder X. And I say genetic disorder X is also associated with kidney problems and heart problems. I'm now gonna send you to the cardiologist. Right. Pediatrician, your job is anticipatory guidance. What, what else to look for? That's what I think the most helpful thing is. Now, a small sliver, people say, well, I can't do anything about it. A small sliver of rare diseases these small genetic disorders do form groups and are moving towards precision medicine treatments because autism is very, very, very heterogeneous, right? But if you found everybody that has gene X, potentially, could you get closer to a clinical treatment? Again, going back to the question of, well, what are you treating? <laughs> That's a different story. But, right. um, you know, we are getting to the point where the, each of these uh, rare disease groups are moving towards, can we get a treatment for my child? And what exactly would that be uh, entail? Um, and that's, right. that's the idea of precision medicine. Right. And even if you can't treat it right now, there's power in numbers for so many reasons, even just for support or finding out like, oh, your kid has that same late learning to eat thing, right? Yeah. That and my did kid it work? Has. Oh, wow. Did it... What did you do about it? Is it harmful? Is it not harmful? Right. Um, you know, I think seizures is a good example, for example, uh, because there are many seizure disorders that also have autism, and many of them are caused by certain channels in the brain. And um, and so certain medications can be helpful for certain types of seizures. So that's an exact example of, you know, if I get a genetic diagnosis, that actually might change how I'm treating your epilepsy. Um, right, absolutely. I mean, I think knowledge is power, and we're learning so much. I would say the only problem is we we still know more, know less about what we don't know. Like you said before, like you, you may get a lot of information you don't know what to do with, right? Or very vague, like a variant of significant, uncertain significance. So, and, yeah. And so, so the important thing to tell patients too is, okay, your child's gene, I am born with my genes the way that they are coded. <laughs> I was born with this string of letters and that's not going to change. What will change is our knowledge about the about those changes and whether it's a, um, a change that we know 20 other people have and they're fine or 20 people have and actually they all have something wrong with them, right? So you go to genetics once and then typically if nothing came up, it is actually important to think about, do I need to go back again? Um, and that's, that's an evolving field as well to be like, well, who do I go back to? Um, people who had a normal genetic 10 years ago, there's a lot of new genetics out there from 10 years yeah. ago. Um, and so again, the knowledge changes about the genetics, your genetics don't change. Right, right. I, 
I can't let myself walk away from this. <laughs> we didn't talk about, you know, we're talking about genetics and autism, but you also said risk. And that would mean there's other factors. And I just have to bring up environment for just a minute because I feel like I shouldn't ignore that. What do we know about the interaction of genes and environment? Because and, that could explain... So an, yeah, yeah, yeah. Could well, explain actually, you could even increase. back up to say, well, what are environmental causes or risk factors for autism, okay. right? So we know being premature increases your risk for autism. We know being very small increases your risk for autism. We know that brain injury, such as due to lack of oxygen at birth or, or bleeding during the, during, during the gestation, during pregnancy, increases your risk. We know that certain infections during a mom's um, pregnancy right? Toxo, uh, sorry, um, rubella, right? Rubella is an increased risk. So if a mom gets rubella during her pregnancy, that increases the risk for seizure, for autism, in addition to CMV um, and other types of viruses. So we know that there are things that happen to the developing brain in our environment that absolutely can increase your risk for autism. Um, and we know that if a mom is on a certain seizure medication called valproic acid, that also can increase the risk of seizures. So we know for sure that there are, there are risk factors that are from our environment that increase your likelihood to develop autism autism. We're still trying to learn about that gene environment interaction, but absolutely there's some kind of interaction. And we say sometimes polygenics, if you have a couple of little changes in the gene, does that also increase your risk? And I think those are the things we're continually learning about. Right. Do you also see that in families with kids with autism, not only do they have a higher risk of kids with autism, but other things as well? Um, it depends on what it is. Um, there, there definitely is an increased risk of other brain-based disorders mm -hmm. or diagnoses, anxiety, schizophrenia, bipolar, um, ADHD, mm -hmm. those type learning disabilities, intellectual disability. Yeah, they do. And, and, you know, I think it's sometimes difficult because we say, oh, it's definitely something runs in the family. That doesn't mean you're going to find something in the genes, in, in the genetics, um, but it still can run in the family. And maybe science just hasn't caught up with us yet. Right. One more question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I really appreciate your time. Do you have parents that come to you and they're really worried about environmental triggers like toxins? Because I've definitely seen that over the years. And it would make sense if you're saying that there's an environment either as the cause or interacting with genes to be concerned about those yeah, I things. Mean, I think we just, we are not at a point in, in science to say that you should avoid all X or you should avoid all mm -hmm. Y. Um, we are not there yet. There are very, very, very good researchers in the field that are trying to see is there certain environmental exposures that are problematic. Um, I think I, I would, I agree that there very likely are environmental things going on. So try to be as even keeled as possible, good exercise, good healthy eating. Yeah less um, additives, less preservatives. I agree. That being said, I, I also am very realistic. And if a child only eats four foods and one of them is goldfish, they're going to eat their goldfish right? Uh, because I don't want them to be deprived of any nutrition. Um, so I think it's about balance. Um, and, and I think we're going to continue to work, move forward together, learning more. Um, and then to me, I think if there are families who really are anxious or nervous about those things, I, I, you know, I wonder, and I ask myself, sometimes I do have to think about the parents and if their mental health is affected, then to me, maybe there is anxiety that runs in the family, whether or not that comes up on your past medical history of the family or not. Right. And I like to say stress is a toxin, right? They're trying to avoid all of these things and reading up on them and, you know, it can make you so stressed that I think that takes away from any benefit of being super, super careful. Yeah. You may be out of your control anyway. Yeah.
existentialism (laughs) (laughs) big thoughts yes try try your best but don't let perfect be the enemy of as good as you're gonna get it's hard it's really hard well and who defines is hard and who defines perfect who says that you can't rock in your chair who says you can't twirl your hair right Absolutely. Absolutely. That goes back to, you know, what really matters, what behaviors really matter and, and, and accepting your child as they are and helping them function to be the best that they can be with your support. My one child used to love twirling her hair. I said, you can twirl it because you're nervous. But when she was having patches of hair, I said, yeah, she said, no. I said, okay, well then let's work on it. Right. Right. Then it became a problem behavior. And it became a problem. Right. I have to thank you so much. I think we did it in one session this time. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I, I, I really, really appreciate it. And they continue to evolve as we learn more. No, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so, so much. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, Check out our Instagram at Joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.
Right, that's presuming you can get it and afford it, though. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> right, right. 